The opinions expressed herein are those of WP Global Partners and should not be taken as an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy securities or interest in any of the funds discussed. Investment in a fund will involve significant risks, including potential loss of the entire investment. Before deciding to invest in a fund, prospective investors should pay particular attention to the risk factors contained in the offering memorandum. Past performance is not indicative of future results. The value of investments and the income derived from investments can go down as well as up. Future returns are not guaranteed and a loss of principal may occur. Please note that some of the fund's investments may include incentive fees that will reduce returns to investors. Prospective investors should be aware that a fund may not achieve its objective and may realize losses. Hello and welcome to everyone joining us today. I'm Richard Perez, Managing Director and Chief Strategist at Boston Private. Today we have the pleasure of being joined by Don Phillips, Chairman and CEO of WP Global Partners, which was founded in 2005 by Don. WP Global is headquartered in Chicago and also has offices in New York City and Los Angeles, and it's, in its 15 years of operation has invested over $6 billion into lower mid-market private opportunities across the world, the investments in highly curated funds and direct opportunities. Prior to founding WP, Don was a CIO for Westam, the U.S. subsidiary of WestLB, a large German bank where he oversaw the firm's $3 billion portfolio of private equity fund investments. Prior to West Ham, Don was the president of Forsman Left International, building a global investment management firm and helping manage pension assets of over $8 billion. He was also chairman of equity institutional investors overseeing real estate and private equity investment activities and sold the real estate business to Blackstone. Earlier in his career, Don also spent many years as a CIO for Ameritech Corporation, where he managed your $15 billion pension fund. In this conversation, we'll draw upon Don's 30-plus years of investment management experience, particularly his extensive background in private equity, investing, and managing institutional and pension assets to discuss making good decisions during difficult times, best practices in developing a private equity investment platform, and how to achieve meaningful returns in private equity. With that, Don, welcome, and thank you for taking the time. You're quite welcome. Look forward to uh, talking to you. Great. Well, I appreciate that, and we all do. Um, Let's start with kind of the elephant in the room. Obviously, we're living in unique times, and uh, COVID is at the top of mind um, for everyone, and both on the health side, of course, but also from an investment perspective. Now, Don, you have an extensive career in private equity and managing assets for family offices, pension plans, et cetera. So you've lived through various times of market stress. Curious if you can kind of draw on that experience and talk about what you've lessons you've learned in different periods of market dislocations. Um, how you draw upon that in difficult periods of time, and how COVID, this COVID environment relates to that. You know, are there concerns you have, how you're navigating that, and are there opportunities on the heels of that? Well, I think if, if you look back, at least in my time frame, we lived through a lot of different uh, volatile markets, a lot of uh, extraneous events that have impacted these markets. And, and, and when you put a portfolio together, in my mind, is, is, is the fact that, that I know volatility is, is, is everybody's measurement of risk. Uh, it's price change. And you have to assume that at any particular point in time in a market cycle, you're going to have to sell security. So the point is, is that to put a, a portfolio together where at any particular point in time or a market cycle, you don't have to sell a security. And that if you can solve that problem, then volatility is not a measurement of risk. 
And that really plays into the private equity marketplace. So if I, if I can position my portfolio where I don't need to draw upon cash at any particular point in time, I can buy a market cycle and I can invest in longer term assets. As a result of that, I can get a higher overall return over a period of time. So when I think in terms of something like COVID, I look back in those periods of time and think, wow, we went through uh, the, the market, market, market cycle of 1987. Uh, we went through uh, uh, the 1991 timeframe. Uh, we went through the uh, 2000 and uh, uh, whatever was, six, seven timeframe. Uh, we've gone through uh, times when I think the killer bees were coming after us. There was times when there was, I mean, I put together a list one day of 30 different things that we've been threatened with over, over our, our lifetimes. Um, and, uh, and, and, and basically, we overestimate them and rarely do the, the, the fear that's created in one ever come about the way in which you anticipate or thought it would. So when you, to me, when you run a portfolio, you sit back and you take, you know, you, you take these into consideration, but, but you don't let them drive you. That's very uh, great perspective, um, given the breadth of the, of the private equity market. And people do view it pretty monolithically, particularly folks who are just entering the space and feeling like they need access to it. In the family office space, we see folks of varying levels of sophistication. And you talked about all those data points, particularly in the mid-market, and um, how many opportunities you have. With such a rich opportunity set, it brings a lot of opportunity, but it also can be pretty daunting for folks trying to access them, source the right opportunity, and due diligence them. How do you, how, in your experience, what are mistakes that folks have made and what are the best ways to basically kind of attack that problem, try to source the best opportunities and properly due diligence them? Um, well, I tell you, the one thing that I've, and, and I've said this forever, is that you only invest in one thing and that's people. If you give a, a, a really a, a, a bad manager a really great science, he always needs another six months and another million dollars. Okay. Uh, if, if you give a bad science to a really good manager, the first thing he does is call you up and says, I'm not putting my, my career at risk and your money. I'm going to get us out of this deal as soon as we possibly can. So people are, are, are really critical of, of, of making things happen. Uh, one last thing on that is, is that I always believe that, that it's not a matter of how smart you are. And what I mean by that is that some people can execute and some people can't. When it comes to playing golf, I know what to do. Execution's my problem, right? So it isn't the fact that people knowing what to do, it's whether they can implement what it is that needs to be done in operating that, that, that company at the end of the day. So, so in, in, in sourcing transactions and looking for opportunities, I mean, there's, there's every industry that you've got that you can imagine that's out there in the small, you know, middle market, even at the large end of the marketplace that, that you want to go to. Um, but, uh, but the opportunities are, are, are oftentimes driven by the people that you're going to meet uh, at the end of the day as well. And, and, uh, and, and everything's all basically a, a factor of, uh, of confidence, do you have confidence that that person can run that business and be able to manage to that particular you know business plan? But looking at a business plan, you can manage it, look at it, evaluate it, and no, with, with no issue. The question is, do you have the right person running the business? It makes sense. And try when you're look, finding the business plans, um, given how many opportunities there are, narrowing that funnel so that you can properly assess 
the people in those businesses. Um, many family offices sit there and they get a lot of incoming deal flow. I would say it's kind of a reactive situation where they're, they're, they're wondering if they have adverse selection. How important is it to be actively seeking these opportunities, being proactive in your deal flow? How is that sourcing of the opportunities that you're going to evaluate? Um, how, how do you manage that process? How important is that process? Extremely important in, in the sense that you, you have to be in a position where you can you can uh, create your own deal flow as a way for somebody else to bring you deal flow. Uh, there are a lot of agents in the business. And, and, and one of the worst things they do is, is, is sit in a room and wait for an agent to bring you a transaction. He brought you a trans or she brought you a transaction, not based upon whether this is the best transaction that was available in the marketplace today. It was based on the fact that this is the transaction that was in queue for them to be able to sell to you today. Okay. So, so the goal is, is to basically be in a position to certainly listen to what other people bring to you. And you, you never rule anything out. There's always opportunity there, but it's, it's selective opportunity. But the key after a period of time of building a relationship with people in the industry, and it's amazing how well uh, the, the word gets out. Now, uh, for instance, uh, we, we oftentimes get, uh, you know, uh, calls come from uh, uh, the CEO of a company or somebody in a senior management level of an operating company that says, hey, I got a friend of mine who has a transaction you might find of interest. Uh, sometimes it's, a, a, it's, it's, a, it's a, another money manager that we may have worked with and create, helping create opportunity. And we were a co-investor with in some fashion that they call us up and say, this doesn't meet our goals, but it might, you, you might find it of interest. Uh, and, and sometimes just after being in the industry long enough, the phone just rings from people who we never know how, how they got your name, but the but phone rings and there's an opportunity that comes to the forefront. So, so creating your own deal flow is really, really key at the end of the day uh, in, in, in creating that, that portfolio. Assessing the people and assessing the businesses, uh, there's a, there's absolutely a skill to that, and there's you invest across multiple industries. How important is it to have folks on your team, um, folks who are making those decisions, and having industry expertise, industry knowledge, to really be able to dig down into those companies and those funds? Is is that an important uh, aspect of building the platform and the and the funds that you partner with? Areas of specialty and specialization. There's a degree of specialization, and that degree of specialization is important. You have to have enough knowledge on a specific industry to know how this company fits within the industry. You can understand a little, how, the, how the business plan operates and will operate under a change in management or whatever takes place. Uh, but, in, but when you need to really dive down deep, there are, there are, as everybody in the industry does, I don't care who they are, are going to use consultants and people that they can rely on to do some, you know, some deeper dives with respect to knowledge. But you can't approach a healthcare transaction without knowing something about the healthcare industry. And you can't approach, a, a, I'll use healthcare as an example because we do a, a lot in that sector, uh, is the fact that you, uh, uh, you can go into it and you can do devices, right? Uh, you can do drugs. Um, you, you can, you can yeah, basically do uh, services. There's different ways in which one can approach that, that the healthcare industry. Uh, my particular belief is generally is that um, I like devices, I like services, just simply because they're measurable and, and, and at the end of the day. 
Uh, but the problem that you know what I have with uh, a lot of other things is when, when the when the FDA becomes your partner, uh, it, it it becomes it, it's not a partner you generally want as the government, and and so usually try to you know, to avoid that. However, those who do do that have generally really high return expectations. But but uh, it's 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 one out of every hundred or thousand that they try. So so my my only point is is that that each 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 sector within private equity is is going you'll be able to identify where you want to be if you have enough knowledge in it to be able to 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 approach it. So uh, you know, and then then there's times when you can be a little bit agnostic in, in uh, uh, on a general management term. Uh, if we have a betting company, uh, you know. Uh, uh, down in Corsicana, Texas. Um, well, it, you know, you, you, it's pretty easy to identify the, what, what, what the needs are of a bed uh, in the manufacturing process and the cost structure and things of that nature. Uh, but those are more general issues. Most of the time, we're going to try to focus in on areas where we think we can bring a knowledge base to the table that uh, will be worked to our advantage relative to the fact that others may not have it. And we, we I alluded to before the long history you have investing in private equity and you gain a knowledge base across the board. We can take a step back to your early days at Ameritech, where you, uh, if not the first, but among the first pension plans to invest in private equity. Maybe speak to that experience, how the industry has evolved, and how you've catered your business and catered the way you approach these markets based on that experience. I'm sure. It was a much different environment then. It's much more competitive now, but also a lot more opportunities. So I'm just curious how you how you see that evolution and your experience uh, looking back to your days in the early '80s investing in private equity. Well, the the interesting part in that period of time was the fact that there was there was uh, there, there were there were no consultants of any consequence in the business, uh, and and that made it a lot more simplistic to communicate with various you know opportunities. But the but if you if you uh, if you look at that that period of time, the the opportunities that were there are are very similar to the opportunities that exist today. Uh, if you if you look back in the time, say, well, wow, you know, those were days when Apple Computer and, and Google and things like that didn't either didn't exist or or were in the process of just formulating their their existence, and they've grown to where they are today. It's no different today with these opportunities. Like I said, what makes this country different? Is this bubbling up of opportunity and ideas that continue continuously out there? Uh, I'm going to tie you back to something that uh, you asked about earlier. In this, in, in 1987, uh, right after the the market crash, uh, at that particular point in time, uh, the uh, it, it was uh, uh, I think private equity, what we all at that time called venture capital. Uh, everything was venture capital in those days. And, and um, uh, we had our very first venture capital uh, forum, which was held in Boston. Uh, and and, and uh, uh, there were two keynote speakers. Uh, at, and Alan Patrikoff was one, and myself. And, 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 and we were to discuss the private equity market, or venture market at that particular point in time. And Alan went on, and, and he was a very knowledgeable guy and, and, and very established in the industry, but even then, and and the point is is that Alan said literally that this could be the death of venture capital as we know it today. And I took my notes, tore them up in front of everybody, and I said, "If you guys believe that BS, I'm going to tell you I'm a buyer." We we ended up buying every. I told everybody, "You want to sell sell it to us? We'll buy it." We were buying things that 
at that time, 20, 30 cents on the dollar. Uh, and, and, and we made returns off of that, which were well over 70%, uh, you know, 100% type returns off of those opportunities because the market basically came back. But the but it, it, it we've gone from a uh, it, from a very uh, 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 marketplace that was very uh, uncoordinated, uh, a little bit less sophisticated than it is today. Uh, but but the fundamental opportunities that created then are very similar to the fundamental opportunities you get today. And the reason I say that is this is, is that I can't tell you how many times. I've been asked the question over the course of the last 30 years, and it's been asked a lot of different ways, is the butt off the rose? Should I have invested uh, you know, in, in, in a, uh, a year or two ago? Is this, is, is this the time to put money to work in the marketplace today? And, and everybody's convinced that, well, all those returns are yesterday's returns. And the answer is, it, 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 it continues to be the greatest opportunity uh, that you can, you can invest in and get a return that's in the 18 to 20% range consistently over a 10-year period of time, if you can be able to absorb uh, the, the, the time value of money. Uh, but but uh, it's an asset class that has to generate those returns. So if I, if I was running a multi-asset class global institutional pool of money, which I did once, I would sit there and say that I'll use Robert Ibbotson's numbers that go back at the U.S. equity market to 1926. And I say, well, you know, Richard, on this hand, I have a, a, a dollar that has a nine, a nine, nine and a half percent compound annualized return for, for the last uh, hundred years almost. And, 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 uh, and you want it. So you have to pay me up for liquidity. You have to pay me up for transaction costs. And by definition, above market risk, right? Or why would I give you a dollar? And, and does that mean that each of those are 100 basis points? Their answer is no. Uh, you, you've got to get, you've got to pay me to take that, those risks. And so you've got to give me a return that's in the 15 to 20% range. Or why in the world would I give you a dollar? Okay. And, if, and, and if you go back and you look at the properly managed portfolio in private equity over uh, those periods of time, uh, uh, I'm going to tell you that uh, those returns are generally in that range. It's, it's actually interesting because I think um, some of the points that you were talking about are ones that family office think about. And um, they try, they have, they have one of the benefits of a family office is they have the duration of that capital. But being able to execute and exercise that patience and navigate the volatility is sometimes challenging. And the private equity structure, if they do their due diligence and partner with the right folks, it kind of allows them to structure it in a way where you can manage that volatility. But on the same, on the same end, when you see big market moves, either a huge rally, a run-up like in the dot-com bubble, or in 87, the example you gave where there was a huge decline, in those environments, if you're sensible, sometimes you can either see the risks or see the opportunity. So I'm curious, as you, you kind of outlined those two different scenarios, as you look at the world today, um, you, it's much more competitive. It's certainly more sophisticated, the marketplace, than it was maybe in 87. But you see this as that type of environment. How important is that to consider when you're building a portfolio and, and there's volatile times or times of dislocation? We, we only know one thing. We, we, we know that's, that it's not going to be consistent over a period of time. Mm -hmm. You're going to live through a volatility. Uh, what I always liked about private equity 
uh, is 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 uh, the fact that you were below the radar screen in, in the sense that uh, you, you were not being measured day to day in the public marketplace. And and, and uh, what what got to me, then I'm going to go off on a tangent. And I'll bring you back. Please. Again, running a multi asset class global portfolio at the time, my point was, I get paid the same. I have the same voice as owning a, a, a twenty million dollars worth of, of some company stock versus somebody who has uh, two shares of stock. Why do I have the same voice, same return expectation in that process? There's something wrong with that picture. I have no control over it. The bigger my presence is in the equity market, the more I'm going to yeah, I'm, I'm going to have a return that's going to revert to the mean, and I'm going to have a return expectation that's to the market. It's inevitable. So how can I add value to a multi-asset class portfolio? I, I can only do it through the inefficient asset classes, commercial real estate, as well as private equity. And, and their local, local knowledge is going to get you, uh, you know, and, and separate you from, from everybody else. So if I can get into a marketplace uh, uh, where, where, where uh, people are, are more afraid at times than others, uh, that's the best time to be in. You alluded a little to the opportunity now and, it's, and the it's, dynamic. Do you think that there's, are you shifting or tilting research or areas of focus to certain industries, certain sectors that you think are particularly impacted, where there's like the commercial real estate example that you mentioned, are there things that you're, you're particularly focused on right now? Last place in the world I put a dollar right now is in real estate. I'd be a seller. I wouldn't be a buyer. But, but if, if you look at uh, for what we're doing right now, uh, is is the fact that we are in a, in a situation where uh, you know we love healthcare. Uh, it, it's uh, you know it's it's a uh, uh, the best part of twenty percent. Some would argue as much as twenty five percent of total GDP. Uh, it's a growing sector uh, in, 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 in drives a lot of technology as it moves along. How, and so we continue to play that sector very well. Uh, we like another sector which has always been with us and always will be, and that's food and, and, and agriculture. Uh, and and um, uh, there's a, that's, a, that's a segment that's going to continue to, obviously, over a period of time, continue to grow. Uh, we've, we've played water for a while, uh, and um, uh, it, 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 it made, made some money in the water area, but it's a, it's a very much more esoteric uh, you know, sector to, to, to be in. Uh, but but generally, uh, those are the when you think of food and water and, and healthcare, we're going to overweight a portfolio in in, in those sectors. And uh, in, in, uh, you know we we do not like any form of retail. Uh, never did. Uh, at the end of the day, I like technology, but if it's a proven you know, you know technology, and uh, in, 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 at the end of the day, but uh, pretty much where we are. Yeah. Um, I want to shift a little bit towards the family office approach to private equity. And um, many folks, they're very sensitive on fees, they're very sensitive on layers. They also want to feel like they're directly involved in the business. But again, being able to effectively underwrite that is a challenge. Um, have you seen folks, uh, in your experience, what are some of the mistakes folks make trying to go directly into deals without much of a platform? We talked a little bit about it with all the agents potentially selling the next deal and not the best deal. And I guess um, how important is it for folks who are just getting their feet wet into the space and partnering with somebody with expertise who can help them navigate that process and curate those ideas? Oh, extremely important. I don't care whether you're a high net worth family or a big corporation. 
uh, you know, we, we went to uh, uh, Northrop Grumman came to us as an example back in, uh, uh, you know, and what was it on pre back in the year 2000 or thereabouts and gave us a huge, um, you know, effort of, of trying to get them into the business. Okay. And we helped them build the staff. We helped them organize themselves up because they had the money and the wherewithal, as you can imagine, to do it. But they couldn't start out because they didn't know where to start in the process. Uh, so a, a high net worth family uh, office depends upon how big they are, whether you have a large family office, whether you're a medium sized one or whether you're small. Uh, I, I don't think, it, put this way, it, 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 um, um, I think it would be very difficult for a family office with assets of less, total assets of less than $500 million to appropriately get into, the, in, into this asset class uh, in, 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 an, in an effective manner because they wouldn't be able to hire the staff of people to be able to go after the opportunities that are out there. Uh, if you're a family office with somewhere around a billion dollars or more uh, and you're not in the asset class, uh, I think that you would probably want to partner with somebody uh, to kind of help understand where, where to go and build your own networking uh, arrangement up at, at that particular point in time. So I think in, in most cases, you, you would want some sort of a partner uh, to work with you uh, to get to access the opportunity. Makes sense. Different families, different organizations have different risk appetites. Sometimes they, they know themselves well and stuff more and what knows what those risk appetites are. But you manage multi-asset portfolios. How do you think about um, allocating to private equity and going in a more commingled approach versus going direct and how to think about the risk and return? And, and here's how you advise folks who come in and maybe say, I just want direct deals. We don't really understand the risk associated to that. How would you articulate that to families? It, 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 it basically is that if you could start out with the fact that in, an, in, in this segment of the asset class, with let's say uh, with 100 operating companies at the bottom of your structure uh, or more, uh, then, then you're basically going to get the return of the asset class. You can, you can pretty much lock it in at 15 to 20%. Net of all fees, by the way. Uh, and then, then, but, but, but if you, if you want to come in and you want to do seven, eight, nine, one-off transactions at the end of the day, and, and, and then, then you're, you're basically living by the sword. Some of those are going to be, you know, potentially great opportunities and some of them are going to be a disaster. Net, net over, you know, what, you, what you've created in a period of time may achieve what the asset class return may not achieve it, but you're going to lose a lot of sleep in between, uh, you know, worrying about them. But the one thing that people don't understand is that when you make a lot of those uh, direct investments or co-investments, if you do the job right, you've got to show up to work every day. You have to help them run those businesses. You can't be to do this passively. Uh, at, at the end of the day, because you are at that particular point in time, you may be a minority investor uh, and you may own 20% of the business, 10% or 30% of the business that's making a difference. You, but you are now an owner of that business that, that, that's going to draw you into uh, more than just going to a board meeting and having somebody you know, tell you what's going on. You go to a board meeting and you realize uh, that you've got the wrong guy running this business. Well, you can't go home and think that that's going to solve itself. You've got to, somebody's got to stand up and say, hey, we've got, we got to find a new CEO. We got to, or we have to uh, resolve a particular issue somewhere that nobody anticipated 
at the time in which it, we went into the investment. Uh, uh, I'll give you an example. We own a company uh, called True Temper, and now it's called True Sports. It makes golf club shafts. Everybody who plays golf knows True Temper. And, and, and so uh, we went into it. Wow, it, it, it was a, how could you go wrong buying into a company that makes golf club shafts and the largest in the industry? It's almost like a staple. Okay. But, but what we didn't understand is that what, what a traumatic shift was going to take place in such a short period of time where the millennials just all of a sudden decided they ain't playing golf and they're not buying golf clubs. And, and, and all of a sudden we thought, well, we're, we're in a world of hurt here because we, as I said at the board meeting, we have a Cadillac problem. Hmm. Uh, you, you know, our buyers are all old and dying uh, and, and every year we have fewer buyers. Uh, and so the point is, is that with, uh, we, we ended up, that company, and, and, and I was only an observer, one of our other partners is on the board and, and, and very much involved with it, but came up with the, they came up with the conclusion that they, they're no longer in the business of just making golf shafts. They now make hockey sticks, uh, you know, and, and, uh, uh, you know, all kinds of other sporting equipments of, of various sorts. That use some sort of fiberglass of, of, of uh, similar nature as a hockey stick and other things of that nature, and, and they uh, and today it's called True Sports. So True Sports now is back. We so we saw True Temper go down dramatically. Now we've seen True Sports come back up, and we have a now a, a broader array of, of, of product to sell and less dependent upon any one particular product. And the company is doing very well, but. But that took a lot of time and effort to crawl inside that company and get people. We went through three CEOs uh, trying to get the right person in there you know, to, to execute the strategy. Now, you bring up an interesting point that I've observed as well. Um, allocators, investors, they make the investment they do a lot of work up front. And then they step, take a step back and right. they think that that, that, that that thesis will carry it through. And, and you speak to the importance of being in the weeds. You own it now. You're going to buy an equity and you have to guide it and manage it through. How do you manage that process? It's important you talk about building a team of expertise. How much time is spent working with those companies? And I guess, how, how do you allocate time between due diligence, sourcing, investing, building the portfolio, and then also managing these companies? Well, we have various teams of people. And, and, uh, uh, and we try to rotate everybody around so everybody gets involved in a lot of different things. But, but when it comes to looking at a specific transaction, the way that we look at it is that somebody has to identify the transaction in, in the sorting process. When that person looks at this particular transaction, shares it in with, the, with, the, with, the, with the investment committee in, in, in an idea of kind of format, it, it's, it's brought in on the basis that this is a, um, it just said, it, it's, an, it's, an, it's just an investment opportunity for us. And then if, if everybody says, okay, that, that sounds interesting, well, this person says, okay, I'll take responsibility for it, and I'm going to go visit the operating company. Now you're going to sign an NDA, uh, you're, and, and, and you're going to um, meet with the, with the management team. You're probably going to end up meeting with the board of directors. You're going to be talking to competitors in the marketplace um, and consultants and try to understand what does this company mean within its industry and what's its opportunities? And then that person comes back and says, okay, I liked what I saw. 
and, and, and explains it to the committee. So now you have to take a second person down to look at it. And the purpose of the second person is to make sure that the first person didn't get, just kind of fall in love with people or kind of idea. What, it's to keep a level of, of independence associated with it. And then if they come back and they like it, uh, they basically write up a memo of, uh, of, uh, uh, of intent. Uh, and, and we go through that, uh, that, that, that description, looking at it much more in, in depth at the end of the day. And then, uh, then there's, there's all questions that come up on that and more research that has to be done. And then after that's done, the, we finally come up with, a, with an investment recommendation. And then at that point, it, it, the, the, the final review within the same body of people. So there's multiple levels of, of review that takes place uh, on, on the operating company. Review of, of the investment committee to, uh, to continue to ask their questions on, on an independent basis, ultimately making a decision. Now, once you make that decision, you have to decide at that point in time, is, the, is this a company that we want to have board representation on, or, or do we need board representation? And if we do need that board, are, do, are we qualified to go on that board to be able to add value? Um, sometimes we've been in situations where uh, you go into it and you say the, uh, the, uh, the last thing this company needs is a, take a science-based company in, in the healthcare area. I don't know what it could be, but bigger. And, and and you sit there and say, what this company needs is a, another. It, it needs a, it needs somebody with a, a scientific background to support this company, not somebody with more financial background that we would bring to the table. So let's go out and find somebody and put them in place on that on that company. That doesn't mean that we walk away from it. Now we have somebody that we inside that we can work with very closely in making educated decisions on what needs to be done and making sure that we oversee uh, that, that company properly for other people's money. So it, it, it's and, and then so in an, on an ongoing basis, it's an evolutionary. Uh, process and then you end up with the taste when somebody's got to walk in the room and say guys we're going to sell this company one of the worst things that can happen is that somebody says and i've had this tell me many times oh boy i bought this company 22 years ago um and for for you know a million dollars i just sold it for 2.2 i feel pretty good about it well i don't know why you feel good about it that was a terrible investment uh, you know, with all those years that money lost at the end of the day, you probably have a, a flat or a negative return on your investment. Um, so the time value of money is key. So you, you make an investment into an operating company. Somebody's got to be in a room to sit there and say, guys, time's up. We've got to sell this company. And, and now that you're going to sell the company, who's going to begin that process of, of initiated to, to manage that process? It's very time consuming. And usually the worst part about it is the person who brings it up, the person's got the responsibility to see it through. But, but the, our goal has always been to, to return your money in your lifetime. And that is that uh, I always tell people I only invest in companies that, 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 that mature in my lifetime. When I was younger, it made more sense. Now that I'm older, everybody thinks I'm going to die. But, but the point is, is that, that uh, I can see five years I can see three years, five years. I can't see beyond five years. And, and, when, and so you have to have a plan that says that I'm going to get liquid and within five years. And if you're wrong, it's six years or it's seven years. But, it, but it's not 14 years. And some of the, this is the thing when you look at a lot of these deals, they're 12, 14 years old, and some of them are even older. And you think, why? Why are you in that deal? Interesting. Um, going back to you walking through your process, it shows a thoroughness that to try to do something effectively and really underwrite it. 
I think it underscores the challenges that families have, particularly if they're not at the scale and size and have the commitment that you mentioned to do it properly. So I think it's an important fact to kind of consider for a family as they decide to go into the space and how they do it effectively and do the proper diligence. Um, you talked a little bit about the exit and how long you hold a deal and how you look at the outlook. Because I know some of the larger families think about buying a company that they think will be generational, right? And then the flip side is trying to get your capital back out of a private equity. How do you think about the discipline of exiting, managing to exit? What's the right time? And um, and, and with LPs, that might have different time, time horizons, different uh, goals. Try never to go into investment with other investors who don't share your time horizon, number one. That, so, so you have to do your review with that, of, of uh, an evaluation of who, who else is in the deal with you. Uh, nothing's worse than being in a room with somebody who wants to hold on to this thing forever. And you, your goal is return an investment to try to return the money back to your, your clients as soon as you possibly can. It's 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 a very interesting you know you know exercise that we've been we, we've learned it the hard way. Uh, so so the point is is that you 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 want to make sure that your goals are consistent uh, with with your investors and they're consistent with the other key investors that are in the operating company that you have today. Uh, so anyway, I, I, I don't know if I answered your question. I was kind of going off on a tangent. No, no, no that's helpful because I think. Um there's the investment, but who you invest alongside with can impact the outcome of these things. Other folks on the board, other investors. So I think it's an important factor, particularly with folks trying to go indirect. That that just complicates the investments. And so again, it's, having the ability to do diligence not all aspects of the team is important. As one of my partners said, all these transactions come with they do not come with power steering. These <laughs> things are never easy to to, to manage, and 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 we've been in deals with some of the best performing deals we've been in, where where we're, we're deals where we're ready to to close the place up, you know, in a very short period of time. I'll give I'll give you another example. It's a company that we have currently today. It's called Mindcare. <clears throat> Mindcare is is a tele uh, a psychiatry, uh, phenomenally growing in business in today's world. And we made an investment, and we made it with um, with um, one other major investor. A very, it was a high net worth family out of uh, San Antonio, and and we went to the to the meeting, and um, and this company was um, uh, I I I had conceded because of the the knowledge base that was in this room that these guys know a whole lot more about this company than I do. I liked its space and wanted to learn more about the space at the end of the day. And it took me about three or four or five board meetings, and I realized they got the wrong people in here running this company. And today, that company has a market value of about $100 million. And, but we were, we were within hours of closing it up. But you had to be able to understand that, that this was a science that made sense. This is a product that the market wants. It's being pulled into the market. We're just not executing and so we need to find somebody who bring in a team that can execute. And once we did, it started to blossom. It's a great example of how these deals aren't always simple. And you have to have expertise and, They're never conviction, and to have conviction to make the changes yeah. necessary. I know we're running close to time, but I did want to leave you an opportunity to impart any other thoughts you have to our family office clients or other folks looking in the private equity space, either um, things that are timely for this time or, or overall you know, exp- uh, you know, view of the market. Right now. If, if, if family office should have, in my mind, 
as I look at myself and others, uh, is the fact that, that you, 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 you have a tail that you want to continue to grow this portfolio at a rate, and everybody has a target return expectation of 20%. Everybody fights all day long for a 20% return expectation. And, 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 and you have to, most people have to get that through some form of, 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 a, of, of assumption of a lot of volatility. Um, and, and, and so my point is, is I don't like volatility and I can buy into a long-tailed investment here that's going to be, I have to be prepared for the, that five to 10 year time frame, but I can generate a return on that portfolio that's, that's greater than, in heaven, in, 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 than any other asset class that I've got. Why would I not do that? Um, if I can take care of my cash up front at the end of the day. And so to me, I think it's a highly necessary part of, 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 a, of a portfolio. And, 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 the, and the, um, the, the bigger the portfolio, the, the more it can absorb as a percentage of assets in private equity than, than those which are smaller, obviously. And the small, smaller ones need to go into some situation where, and I'm smaller, it's, I'm not discounting at all, I'm talking $500 million family or smaller, to go in and making investments in a pooled or of, of, of vehicle that's going to give them the best part of a hundred or so uh, investments at the bottom of the structure that's going to be able to give, generate the return expectation they have, which is 15 to 20 percent, and then give them the opportunity to selectively invest into a, a, a specific one-off transactions within those portfolio companies, if that makes sense. Very helpful, sage advice. and. Um... Don, I'd like to thank you again for taking the time to speak with me today. It's been really insightful. We really appreciate your thoughts and, and us drawing on your experience and, um, you know, wish you continued success. Um, and for our guests uh, on the line, thank you for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us or with uh, Don and the WP Global team or have any questions, please feel free to send us an email to familyoffice at bostonprivate.com. I'd also recommend that you check out our website where you can find numerous resources, sign up for our newsletter, Get this uh, podcast and much more in your inbox and learn about how we help family offices. That website is bostonprivate.com slash family office. Thank you again, Don, and uh, thank you all for joining us. Yeah. Thank you, Richard. This podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. The opinions expressed and information contained in this podcast are given in good faith, may be subject to change without notice, and are as of the date issued. All sourced information is believed to be reliable but has not been independently verified. This podcast discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions and should not be construed as personalized investment advice. The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Neither BPW nor its investment professionals or representatives provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by contacting us at 800-422-6172 or info at bostonprivate.com. Private banking and trust services are offered through Boston Private Bank and Trust Company, a Massachusetts chartered trust company. Wealth management services are offered through Boston Private Wealth LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and wholly-owned subsidiary of Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank is an FDIC member and equal housing lender. 
Investments are not FDIC insured, not bank guaranteed, and may lose value. 